though this is a more or less a cookie-cutter executive order. You could have the same executive order on alien abduction, right? We're going to uh, we're gonna spend money. I'm not telling you how much, but the, the, the agencies will spend whatever they're spending. That'll be good. We're going to do um, what we can, as long as it doesn't cost anything, to learn more about it. Uh, uh, we're going to uh, talk to our international partners about uh, alien abductions. Uh, we should encourage people to take up careers in alien abduction. <laughs> I, there's no real new content here, uh, as far as I can see. Uh, I thought it was interesting that DOD has some very specific things they think AI is going to be really good for, and, and they aren't necessarily, uh, you know, killer robots. Uh, stuff like that suggested they have actually spent a fair amount of time looking at AI as a tool for the institution. I was doing my utmost to avoid the phrase killer robots, but <laughs> 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 Yeah, well, you know, I, we're famous on this podcast for going there. Uh, so, yes, we, we went there right away. <laughs> We've already also gone to alien abduction, I would just know for the record <laughs> on this topic. Welcome to episode 251 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, uh, and any resemblance between the statements made here and the views of our partners, our clients, uh, our institutions is purely coincidental. Uh, uh, joining me uh, for the news roundup, and we're only going to have a news roundup this time, uh, uh, is Brian Egan, who's a partner in our Washington office, uh, formerly with the State Department and the National Security Council. Nate Jones, uh, who's the uh, co-founder of Culper Partners, formerly with the National Security Council's Counterterrorism Office, and uh, along with David Chris, who's also a, uh, a participant uh, uh, in our podcast, uh, um, having been bitten by the podcast bug, he and David are producing a series, I think a limited series of uh, podcasts uh, uh, on how American government and the constitutional order work. Uh, 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 Nate, can you give us the elevator pitch for your podcast? <laughs> sure. Thanks for the opportunity to plug it, Stuart. Um, so that's right. We we're um, you know at a time when uh, I think there's broad bipartisan concern about uh, the rule of law and, and associated norms being uh, trampled on or cast aside in some cases. Um, we wanted to pull together a, a group of, of experienced individuals from across the political spectrum um, and with different uh, backgrounds in terms of experience in the private sector and, and across the public sector and, and hear from them about um, what the rule of law means to them, why it's important um, in the work that they did in government in the private sector and also um, to to American security and, and prosperity more broadly. And so um, it will be a limited series, about 10 or 12 episodes at the end of the day. and and. Um, and as I mentioned to you just before we kicked off, it's given me a newfound appreciation for the level of work you guys put into this, which is why it ended up being a limited series. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, if I had been smart enough to, to describe the Cyber Law podcast as a limited series, uh, I would have spent another day uh, uh, in the Vermont mountains uh, and uh, – probably would have broken something because uh, <laughs> my advice uh, uh, to all of the listeners is when a nine-year-old who has a 
season pass to the mountain you're on says, follow me, Grandpa, don't. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, uh, and our last uh, participant uh, is uh, uh, someone who uh, really, I've never met somebody who had two completely different um, identities to assert. Uh, On the one hand, this could be Jennifer Smith that we're interviewing. And on the other hand, it could be the exotic Jana Malikos. So, uh, Jennifer Jana Malikos Smith, what's the story behind your identity? My goodness, exotic. Thank you. (laughs) Um, It's a very humble origin, actually. So, going back to the history of Wellesley College's Russian department, which was founded by Vladimir Nabokov, Um, Professor Thomas Hodge, who's the director there, he has a practice of assigning all students new Russian nicknames. So the Russian equivalent of my name, uh, Jessica, would be Jana. So that's how I acquired that moniker. It's a a fun Wellesley College Russian department practice. Okay, okay. I I apologize. I think I called you Jennifer. So we are adding to the confusion of your secret identities. Uh, I I like this. And Malako Smith, I take it you, you, you sort of married into white bread? Actually, Malekis is my mother's maiden name, oh, and Smith's okay. my father's, so combined. Okay, so she married into white bread. Uh, uh, all right, uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, uh, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host of today's program. So the issues I thought I'd start with are... Uh, just what a beating big tech is taking uh, uh, from regulatory uh, authorities around the country, uh, around the world, uh, uh, and maybe give a very quick uh, update on them. Uh, you may remember there was a copyright directive around that the EU was pushing uh, uh, that was designed to ensure much more aggressive enforcement of copyright law. Uh, through upload filters so that people couldn't upload products that uh, uh, were violative of copyright uh, and taxes on links uh, so that if uh, uh, you did a news search and you got a one-sentence description of a a particular story in a European newspaper, uh, Google would have to pay the uh, newspaper uh, to include that one-sentence summary. Uh, Both of those were heavily uh, contested uh, and as in the way of European legislation and regulations and directives. Uh, It was an endless process that seemed at one point to offer some restrictions on the the dumbness of these uh, policies. But nope, I, uh, given the choice between dumbness and uh, um, uh, sticking it to big tech, uh, Europe has chosen dumbness. Uh, uh, and so uh, these um, provisions are going to survive the EU legislative gauntlet. Uh, uh, similarly, the FTC is in negotiations and widely remo- rumored to be proposing a multi-billion dollar fine on uh, Facebook for violation of the uh, uh, previous consent decree that uh, that, uh, was entered into 2011 or so. I find this really hard to 
understand because uh, the uh, uh, the consent decree enforcement uh, law is not that uh, the, the law there is not that good. Uh, there have been some decisions in which the courts have said uh, you're only in violation of the consent decree if the consent decree is written in a very airtight way. So we can say, uh, yeah, there is no doubt that this was a violation. I'm guessing that most of the things that Facebook did that were uh, being uh, charged as violations were close calls, arguable, uh, and uh, Facebook could probably spend years in court arguing over this rather than settling for multi-billion dollar claims. My guess is that uh, uh, Facebook just doesn't think they have any public support on any of this stuff. They have just been beaten up so badly that if they were to press this uh, 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 further, uh, they'd only get more bad press. That, 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 that's the only thing I can think of uh, uh, why they would be uh, settling at that level of um, uh, uh, damage. And then finally, uh, just to show that I don't always say the EU is wrong, uh, the EU has come up with a, a set of rules that they are um, rolling out uh, competition rules for platforms uh, uh, like Amazon uh, selling third-party goods. Uh, uh, all of the third-party good uh, uh, platforms are going to be regulated uh, by the EU with a relatively light touch. They're going to say we want to see what the uh, how you treat third-party sellers different from your own wares, and this is a big issue with Amazon, which sells a lot of third-party uh, stuff, uh, uh, and figuring out how to get that coveted top slot uh, uh, has produced, as we've talked about, some really aggressive tactics on the part of uh, third-party sellers and a desperation to uh, uh, make uh, Amazon happy with them. And uh, the having... Those rules spelled out a little more clearly probably does make sense, uh, uh, and I think um, you know the, uh, the the EU is is going to come up with a few things that no one should do on a platform, and from there let it play out, which is probably as good as you can get. Um, uh, exploiting your platformness is something that. that um, Microsoft invented in the 90s, and it made them a very uh, uh, successful company. And uh, all of Silicon Valley has been searching for the opportunity to be a platform where you can both uh, uh, get paid by people to uh, provide services and watch the services that they provide so that you can take over from them if they get too successful. Uh, um, and uh, that remarkable position of being both a, um, a necessary service and a competitor uh, is uh, a license to print money, and uh, the EU is probably right to get uh, nervous about it. Okay, <laughs> so that is um, a, the, the news from Europe, more or less. Uh, uh, in the U.S., artificial intelligence is now so so much of a buzzword that even DOD and even the White House uh, have felt obliged to express views on it. Uh, um, uh, uh, Jana, I did not think we learned a lot from the White House executive order on artificial intelligence. Am I wrong? Well, it's true that 
no financial amount was listed in how much um, the U.S. government will now be funding AI research initiatives. However, in the Hill article, it reported that the current AI budget for the Pentagon for this fiscal year is about $90 million, and the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center director will be asking for an increase in the 2020 uh, fiscal budget request. But putting the monetary considerations aside, I thought it interesting that the executive order highlighted five main principles. And in contrast, the DOD AI summary strategy has um, the, the five main principles in the executive order. Here you have investing in this order has five principles. And in contrast, the DOD 2018 strategy summary that was released the day after has four. Um, but the executive order, one, it mentions investing in artificial intelligence research and development. Two, it talks about transparency, providing uh, certain federal data and models, making sure that they're more available to American research and development experts and AI researchers in this field. Third, it talks about setting governance standards, and specifically, it mentions the National Institute of standards and technology pioneering the way here and leading the development of setting appropriate technical standards in this space. And four discusses talent development, so cultivating that pool, building partnerships in academia, creating fellowships, training programs, really trying to grow that base and build a connection going forward. The fifth piece is engaging with international partners and protecting the American advantage in this sphere. So I here's uh, and I'm I'm going to ask Brian to uh, Brian Egan to uh, weigh in on this. I feel as though this is a more or less a cookie cutter executive order. You could have the same executive order on alien abduction, uh, right? We're gonna uh, we're gonna spend money. I'm not telling you how much, but the the, the agencies will spend whatever they're spending. That'll be good. Uh, we're gonna do um, what we can as long as it doesn't cost anything to learn more about it. Uh, uh, we're going to uh, talk to our international partners about uh, alien abductions. Uh, I, I, there, uh, we, we, we think, you know, uh, we should encourage people to um, take up careers in alien abduction. <laughs> I, it, it, there, there's, there's, there's no real new content here uh, as far as I can see. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, Brian, Jana, you think I'm wrong? Well, I, th I think this seems like part of a kind of a normal presidential playbook in how to address a big national security problem is, right. among other things, you would issue a presidential directive, which tries to organize your government in a way that would uh, address the problem. Yeah, but it sort of clears out the lanes. It says, oh, yeah, oh, NIST, they've got that great document on alien abduction. They, we, should, we should not you know, name check that. <laughs> And in some cases, that this document could be the executive order that's forever cited by the agencies who want to argue we should be doing more on AI. In of other course. cases, it will be forgotten in a couple of months. It really depends on how much the folks in the interagency with the juice on this issue are behind this policy. So I, th that's why I think the, the DOD strategy is kind of more interesting because they actually – They've actually thought about how they would use AI. Uh, uh, so, Jana, do you think there's more to this uh, White House thing than uh, or should we just jump right to DOD? Um, I agree with what Brian has said, that this is a, a promising first step. You're laying that first brick in, in constructing the home. But I agree with you that there is much more to 
unpack in the DOD piece. So if you'd like to transition there, yeah. happy to. Um, so I thought it was interesting that DOD has some very specific things they think AI is going to be really good for, and and they aren't necessarily uh, you know killer robots. Uh, uh, they're things like uh, we need to manage our uh, logistics. We need to make sure that our um, planes are flying and are maintained in ways that prevent us from being surprised by maintenance failures that uh, uh, aren't ordinarily part of our checklist. Uh, um, uh, stuff like that was um, suggested they have actually spent a fair amount of time looking at AI as a, a, a tool for the institution. I agree. I'll, I'll begin first by saying I was doing my utmost to avoid the phrase killer robots, but <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, this, we're, we're famous on this podcast for going there. Uh, so yes, we, we went there right away. <laughs> We've already also gone to alien abduction. I just know for the record on this topic. Um, but you're, you're correct that the focus was not on autonomous weapon systems, but talking about uh, preventative maintenance applications for AI, uh, possible humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, uh, which, which was surprising to hear about how that could be applied in this sphere, but a, a very promising uh, first step in highlighting that there is more to just the um, the stereotype of, oh, it's DOD and AI, it must be killer robots. No, there are many more applications when it comes to the military relationship with this technology. Um, in terms of the strategic focus areas, the executive order listed five. This one has four. Uh, there are some similarities, but some differences. And the, the chief difference I noticed was the last one discussing America leading the way in military ethics and AI safety? Yeah, so I, you know, I, I, I always worry when uh, DoD uh, uh, sort of says, "Oh, we're going to outlawyer everybody." Uh, uh, it's not hard to outlawyer people who don't care what the law is, uh, uh, and that's been our experience in fighting wars in the last fifty years. Uh, um, it, but. A big chunk of what they're talking about here is a little more granular and a little less uh, airy-fairy. Things like how do we make sure that uh, our autonomous weapons don't do things we didn't expect and start a war or um, uh, dramatically change the nature of it without anybody having uh, thought that was a good idea. And that is an interesting sub-problem and, and one that you don't have to express in legal terms. You can just say, you know, uh, let's not do something stupid. True. Um, and in the Congressional Research Service's new report, um, on U.S. ground forces, robotics, and uh, autonomous systems, it had mentioned that Congress was just beginning to evaluate the issue of whether the Department of Defense should develop fully autonomous weapon systems for ground forces. And I've been thinking in my research at uh, Duke Law School, well, before we can really address that question, shouldn't we also first discuss what the core operating principles are for the warfighter? And understanding that the law of war, that's the, the legal lodestar here. But what about developing a warrior ethos specific to artificial intelligence that the human warfighter can take going forward? 
And the uh, DOD summary report, it mentions that humans are essentially the uh, the center of this technology. So in playing with that idea and looking at what other um, reports that the different military branches have put out there concerning robotics and autonomous systems and um, the U.S. Army's warrior ethos, I actually developed a intelligent autonomy warrior ethos, some core principles to help the warfighter in this sphere. Because a warrior ethos is more than a code of conduct in warfighting. Broadly put, it's a way of life that applies to the soldier's personal and professional life as well. Uh, if you'd like, I'm happy to demo it for you. It's um, four lines. Okay. It, it sort of reads like a poem in a way. But um, the U.S. <laughs> Army, for example, they have a, a warrior ethos that's about five lines. So you, if you have any military... Um, members in the audience, which I'm sure you do, yep. um, they might recognize the parallels with this. So here goes. I am the warrior in the design. Every decision to employ force begins with human judgment. I verify the autonomous weapon system's target selection before authorizing engagement, escalating to fully autonomous capabilities when necessary as a final resort. I will never forget my duty to responsibly operate these systems for the safety of my comrades and to uphold the law of war for I am the warrior in the design. All right. So I, I you know, I, whenever you tell me about the law of war in, in unusual circumstances, I think it's uh, overdone. Uh, but uh, uh, because we have no idea what it means in many of these contexts uh, and to the extent that we make it really clear and, and reduce it to a whole bunch of uh, uh, rules. They are rules that no one else will recognize. And I don't think the Chinese uh, warrior ethos is going to have any reference to the law of war, although they may well recognize the idea that you shouldn't let these things get out of control, that you ought to know what uh, targets you're, uh, uh, you're attacking uh, or setting these things loose at. Uh, um, but I, I, I let me ask this. How is it that you can actually know what these things are doing when we've already seen artificial intelligence that is able to come up with actions, often clever and effective actions, that no one could have explained and no one knows how uh, the machine developed those capabilities? Uh, it just ran enough simulations that it said, well, this seems to work every time, so I'll try that. And you know, this is how IBM's Watson has managed to win Go against all the champions as well as chess uh, and, and Jeopardy. Uh, uh, so how is it that the warriors who are designing these things can actually take responsibility for what artificial intelligence is going to do? So there are different categories of um, interface between the human and the machine. Uh, you may have heard it described as human in the loop weapons, human on the loop weapons, and human out of the loop. And the type that I was referring to with the, um, the warrior ethos concept is talking about human out of the loop weapons. So that's the, the fully autonomous weapon systems in theory would not depend on the human input to function. However, um, the Department of Defense's um, autonomy directive states that there will that we will use AI in a humor human centered manner. So there's still even though this technology theoretically would be capable of operating 
without human input, once activated, there's still a human operator at the core overseeing this. And there was a, another article in uh, Verg that had said military commanders are leery of relinquishing control to a technology to make that decision to employ lethal force. And thus far, we've seen the DOD policies clearly reflect that there will always be human in the equation and making the decision to employ lethal force. So that sounds like the sort of thing that the peacetime bureaucrats in the Pentagon say, uh, and we don't know whether that's how it will work out until we're actually in a war and we see what's working and what's not, and most of all, what is working against us. But we'll have to see. Um, the UN um, group of government experts meeting on this technology, uh, the chair released a summary of the uh, discussions. And this um, is on point to what you had said, Stuart, um, that disconnect. Um, surprisingly, the chair's comments had said, well, um, the law as it stands now is fine. We don't need to adjust it, but we should keep developing um, this technology. And it, it was strange to see in a way, a, a green light saying go forward and then encouraging a type of lethargy and exploring how international law maps out onto this technology, both in a time of peace, but also in times of conflict. So it's a undeveloped area uh, for sure. But um, it was interesting to see the, the UN group of government experts take that position. Yeah. The Russians, who were a big part of that discussion, have um, finally gotten around to something they've been talking about for a while. They're, they're actually going to implement a, uh, um, an internet kill switch. Uh, it, uh, they're going to cut themselves off from the uh, uh, global internet and do all the routing inside Russia uh, using their own uh, uh, technology. Uh, um, I, I thought that was a, a, an interesting experiment because it implies that they think that that's going to give them a military advantage. Uh, they'll be able to filter uh, attacks uh, and at the same time take advantage of the global internet's uh, weaknesses, uh, architectural weaknesses, to destroy their adversaries, i.e. ours, uh, our capabilities. Uh, uh, and it does strike me that uh, if nothing else, this experiment on the Russian part ought to ask us, what would we do if they actually did disconnect and then attack our DNS system and the remainder of the uh, global architecture for internet communications? I don't think we've got an answer. All right. Speaking of answers, uh, uh, Israel has apparently got an answer to a question they, they hadn't been planning to ask until DOD and uh, the U.S. government started leaning on them, uh, which is, are you going to keep taking Chinese money for uh, some of your military and uh, AI uh, capabilities? Uh, uh, and they, have, they are now, uh, the Israeli government is now looking at developing its own CFIUS process, uh, proving that CFIUS really is uh, contagious. Brian, I, what do you think this actually is going to amount to? Well, it, it's that's the $1,000 question because, as you said, Stuart, Israel's been under a lot of pressure from the U.S. government, uh, including several high-profile visitors who publicly called them out for not doing more to screen foreign investments. So, there was a journal article last week indicating that the prime minister's office is developing some sort of mechanism. Um, 
remains to be seen whether this will be Israel's equivalent of the AI executive order you talked about a few mm -hmm. minutes ago, or whether this will look more like a real interagency process with real authority to screen and potentially stop transactions that are problematic from a national security perspective. So uh, the FIRMA, the, the new U.S. Uh, law, does have provision for more coordination with foreign governments that have similar processes. Does this open opportunities for Israel to, to, to get more information and to do more coordination? Yeah, it, it does. So there are two advantages under FIRMA, the new the CFIUS reform law for countries that cooperate with the United States in forming their own foreign investment reviews. One is sharing of information, as you said, between the U.S. and foreign governments becomes easier. Second is it's possible for companies from those foreign governments, uh, foreign countries to take advantage of additional flexibility in the U.S. CFIUS rules if they can show that their own government has a CFIUS process on the back end, mm -hmm. uh, that there's, FIRMA writes in some additional uh, exceptions that the U.S. government could use to apply to those countries that have their own CFIUS processes. So my guess is then if, if you're the Israeli government, you want to develop a process that looks enough like CFIUS so that uh, CFIUS is comfortable using those authorities. Yes, but you're balancing that against what has been a real surge in investments from China in particular oh, and uh, trying to figure out if you can kind of uh, have your cake and eat it too in a way uh, in, this, in this area. And that's always been DOD's worry with Israel is that they're, they're closer to China than the U.S. is in a big way on, on things like drones. And, and so um, it, it's possible this marks the beginning of uh, forced choice between uh, uh, Chinese money and markets and uh, uh, U.S. money and markets. Yep, that's true. Okay. All right. Uh, uh, so speaking of forced choices in China, uh, the Chinese government uh, is offering a new service. The Ministry of Public Security uh, is now going to pen test uh, uh, businesses in China, including, as far as I can tell, uh, uh, anybody connected to the internet, any um, Western companies can be pen tested, which uh, and and apparently without much n by way of notice and consent, which is indistinguishable from hacking them to see whether they're hackable uh, uh, to, uh, and maybe to improve their security, but also to see if they're up to things that are uh, violations of Chinese law. It's a remarkable um, step beyond what the Ch what the Japanese did. The Japanese were saying, maybe we'll try out a few uh, default passwords on people's Internet of Things to see whether they're part of a denial of service attack. Attack, And the Chinese have said, why don't we just see if we can get into the s systems and see whether they're doing anything that we don't like uh, uh, from a security or otherwise purpose uh, uh, point of view. Uh, and um, uh, this is a new authority, relatively new. There's a report out by Recorded Future that talks about it. Uh, um, uh, but I think... If I had to say what's the lesson here, it's that the idea of governments getting more intrusive in the private sector is certainly one that China has picked up with enthusiasm. And it may be a worry for people, the, the, the Western companies who are still doing business in China. The Iranians are, you know, their tradecraft is always surprising. Uh, they actually 
managed to convert a former military uh, officer uh, to provide targets for a bunch of hacks, uh, people who are still in the U.S. government and still uh, working on classified programs. And the U.S. government has kind of come down on uh, that whole operation in a pretty serious way. Uh, uh, Brian, uh, uh, what is, uh, what's the story here? So last week, Treasury and the Justice Department uh, jointly announced sanctions and an indictment uh, that relate to a woman named Monica Witt, who was with the Air Force uh, Counterintelligence uh, Office, uh, who attended a conference, publicly attended a conference. This has been in the press before, uh, organized by a group called New Horizons Organization called Hollywoodism, which uh, has been derided by the Anti-Defamation League and others as just anti-Semitic. She converted, uh, she defected from the United States, she moved to Iran, and she's now accused by the Justice Department of espionage. She's accused by the Daily Beast of being Iran's dumbest spy because her tradecraft was so obvious and well-known to the U.S. government. They've been tracking this for years. This culminated in an indictment of Ms. Witt and a couple of Iranians last week and sanctions by OFAC against this New Horizons organization and several individuals associated with that effort. So uh, uh, Iranian tradecraft continues to surprise, but maybe not in a good way. <laughs> I mean, in a way, the, the accusations are pretty serious that she disclosed a uh, compartmentalized DOD intelligence program. She turned over the identities of some of her former colleagues who were then uh, subject of attacks from Iran. Um, but in the other, it's not clear how effective any of this actually was uh, uh, when the Iranians got the information. Okay. So it, it also reflects the uh, relatively coordinated uh, indictments, sanctions from Treasury, uh, uh, attacks on espionage, cyber espionage, and other forms of espionage that we don't like. Uh, uh, but of course, it was easy to, to, to go after Iran because we're going after Iran and everything else anyway. That's right. Okay. Nate, uh, the EU is using sanctions or threatening to use sanctions as well in a slightly different context. Uh, what's going on there? Yeah. So the, the EU is, is in the process of developing a, a plan to um, <clears throat> utilize, as you said, sanctions to um, to try to deter uh, malicious cyber attacks on the EU. Um, some of the language is reportedly explicitly focused on um, election-related hacks. And, um, you know, I think on, on the one hand, this is obviously somewhat encouraging as we see the, the EU stealing itself and getting ready to, to try to um, fight back against um, these types of attacks on, on its infrastructure and, and its elections. You know, we still have this ever-elusive question about you know, what level of, of harm must be inflicted by the hacker before the deployment of these kinds of cool tools are um, appropriate. It's We've never really been able to get agreement on that important question uh, internationally. It sounds like the Europeans may be um, coalescing around a single approach on that question. Um, the reports are it's a pretty low bar. Um, it, would, it would potentially include um, mere intrusions into IT systems or even attempts to intrude into IT systems. Um, but, you know, the million dollar question ultimately is going to be when and how effectively do they actually deploy these things once, once this, um, this new system is, is in place and how, how well are they going to stick together and work with others to impose these kinds of consequences. 
in an effort to to change behavior. And that um, is the the thousand dollar question, as Brian said, on on this issue. I think. Yeah. So they're worried about the uh, the European Parliament elections. Uh, mm -hmm. Probably most afraid that people won't notice that there are elections. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I and and. Just you always have to get a jab in at the EU. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help it. It's true. Uh, 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 but uh, you know, very. It is also true that people in Europe tend to treat the elections to the uh, European Parliament as an opportunity to protest whatever it is they're protesting. Uh, uh, there has been relatively little consolidation of parties around. Uh, European platforms uh, uh, that uh, would actually make a dis uh, difference, as witness, I, I think the the link tax and the uh, copyright directive and the filtering, all of which are probably bad for consumers, uh, but uh, which the European Parliament isn't going to do anything about after whining about it. So they've they've made a lot of noise and and not much else. Uh, uh, but it it is an opportunity for Europe to say we're going to get tough if somebody tries to interfere with these elections. Uh, and maybe maybe they do have something to worry about as as enthusiasm for the European project wanes even in the core countries. Uh, you could see a concerted effort on the party part of parties that really dislike the EU to uh, capture a majority and then take action against uh, the kinds of things that the European uh, Commission is trying to do. Um, I, I, I'm skeptical, but that could happen. And obviously, if you're a European Commission uh, grandee, you, you worry about that. All right. Uh, I love this story. William Webster is 94 years old. He was the head of the FBI. He was the head of the CIA. He continues. I see him uh, uh, pretty regularly because he's chair of the Homeland Security Advisory Council. Uh, I, a, a remarkable man with a remarkable history. Uh, uh, and uh, to which really he's added to the legend of this is not a guy you screw with. Nate, uh, uh, tell us this, this story. Yeah. So, um, you know, these there are 31 different flavors of these kinds of um, fraud scams, um, either email or, or phone call based scams that um, are being directed at people around the world. And it uh, despite it being pretty commonly known, um, it is a still somewhat effective uh, business for scamsters around the world. Um, it's a fairly large industry um, by dollar amount, but it's a it's a volume business. So you have to uh, call a lot of people and um, to get a small handful to to fork over some money. And, um, in this case, uh, this Jamaican gentleman who was out um, looking for money um, using a pretty common scam that's been used before. It's uh, often refer often referred to as an advance fee fraud scam. Um, he made the mistake of calling, as you said, um, William Webster, the former uh, FBI director and CIA director. And even at 94, um, he recognized the fraud, um, <laughs> reported it. They had a, a number of conversations over a period of time, it sounds like. And, you know, if that wasn't a big enough mistake, uh, the poor Jamaican gentleman made another mistake by traveling to the United States voluntarily after he had been indicted. 
Yeah. Uh, I'm sure he well, didn't know he'd been uh, indicted. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. Um, I assume he did not know that, but it was a mistake nonetheless, mm-hmm. where he was promptly arrested and, and charged um, in relation with that attempted fraud. Um, pled guilty, and and upon serving his time, he'll be uh, promptly deported back to Jamaica. So here's my question, and I can't, I didn't see this in the story, or maybe I didn't uh, notice it, but uh, it occurs to me that at 94, Judge Webster may be in the uh, generation that still answers their landline phone. <laughs> Uh, it, it was was this a, a a scam where he was randomly calling people's landlines? It sounds like it, yeah. <laughs> well, That's what my kids say now. They and, when the phone rings in our house, they say, "Don't answer it, Dad." Yeah, no, and I, I, exactly. <laughs> Why do we have this thing? Just don't answer it, Dad. <laughs> well, uh, obviously, we're all glad that uh, Judge Webster did answer the phone and uh, uh, came down on this guy. It's uh, it's very exciting. Yeah. All right, uh, that uh, uh, wraps up our uh, episode uh, two fifty one. Uh, uh, thanks to Brian Egan. Uh, thanks to Nate Jones. Uh, thanks to uh, uh, Jessica Jana Maliko Smith. Uh, uh, this has. Been been episode 251 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, uh, remember, if you get a chance to check out uh, Nate and David's Rule of Law podcast series, the uh, uh, first episode is now up on the Lawfare Podcast. Uh, uh, and uh, in additional uh, public service announcements, our friends at Third Way and the Journal of National Security Law and Policy are looking for proposals for their upcoming cyber enforcement symposium. So if you've got ideas about uh, uh, things you'd like to write about in that area, uh, this is a great opportunity to get published. Uh, if you send us a interview uh, guest suggestion and we bring them on the show, we will send you our highly coveted Cyber Law Podcast mug. I'm looking forward to getting more of those uh, uh, suggestions. Uh, um, send them to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. When I'm not trying to follow the nine-year-olds down uh, uh, cliffs that I should not uh, uh, be on, I am tweeting uh, the suggestions for the next uh, uh, podcast. So if you follow me on at Stuart Baker, you'll probably see some of those suggestions, and you can comment if you think I should or shouldn't uh, cover them. Uh, please do rate our show, uh, especially on Stitcher, where we only have one rating, and it was grumpy and mean. Uh, uh, so if you think it wasn't uh, fair please leave your own. Uh, coming up, guests we're going to have. Dmitry Alperovich from CrowdStrike is going to be talking about their new report. Uh, Gordon Kravitz and Steve Brill, an unlikely uh, uh, ideological pairing, uh, have come gotten together to create NewsGuard, which is an effort to uh, rate the uh, media sources that are getting online. Uh, we'll be talking to them. I'm a mild skeptic on uh, this. Uh, Elsa Kanya, who has been on before, is going uh, from the uh, Center for New American Security, will come on and talk about her most recent research. Uh, Amy Ziegart uh, of Stanford's Hoover Institution will be coming on shortly. And Adam Siegel of the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, he knows a lot about what's happening in China. It'll be fun to talk to him. Uh, our uh, show credits, uh, Lori Paul and Christy Jorge are the producers. Doug Pickett our audio engineer. Michael Beaver is the intern who has brought order to our program uh, and uh, is the only reason that uh, Nate Jones thinks that we're better organized than he is. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, your host. Uh, please join us again next time as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.